Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. One thing you didn't know about me, uh, I proposed to Kendall at a cemetery. Uh, it's, in my defense, it was a, a very nice place, a nice location actually on the, on the edge of an escarpment looking down over the northern midlands of Tasmania. Um, a beautiful, beautiful scenery. Uh, and there was someone buried there at the time, so it was technically a cemetery, but only one person was buried there at the time. There are a few more there now. A person I want to tell you a little bit about right now. His name was Bob Adams, and he was a friend of mine. He had red hair and his, and his big bushy red beard. He just exuded warmth. Um, he had this kind of round face that was always seemed to be smiling, and he was as Aussie as they came. He loved gum trees. He loved Aussie rules footy. He was a Victorian, uh, and he was generous to a fault. But Bob had this amazing way of telling stories that made you feel like you were actually there, especially Bible stories. You see, um, Bob Adams was my teacher at Bible college. Uh, He'll never be well known though, uh, at least not in the way that you'd imagine, because then Bob had the privilege uh, that not many people get of organising his own funeral. Uh, You see, Bob was diagnosed with brain cancer at about the age of 50. Um, It was inoperable by the time they found it, and he was only given a few months. While we were all grieving, uh, Bob got busy. It turns out that he wasn't afraid of dying, but he was desperate for one thing. He was desperate that people would know the reason for the hope that he had. There were literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds, close to a thousand people at his funeral, and they came from all over Australia to this little town in Tassie, ready to celebrate this man's life. It quickly became apparent that talking to all these strangers from all different parts of Australia, there was something pretty incredible about Bob. He would impact people everywhere he went. And so this man sprang to my mind as I was studying today's passage. What is it that made Bob Adams so different to everybody else? How is it that someone who's so fearless could also be so gentle? How is it that someone who expressed so much urgency could also be so very patient? I'm going to venture that Bob understood what it was that this passage that we're looking at today is all about. It's about following Jesus wholeheartedly, but the fact is we can't do that in our own strength. So how do we have that ability? How do we gain that ability? That's what I reckon Bob figured out, and I reckon it's what this passage is going to address for us today. So as a bit of a summary of what we've done up until now, if you've been around this church for any length of time, you know that we teach verse by verse through the Bible, chapter by chapter, one book at a time. We've recently finished Ephesians uh, in the New Testament, Jonah in the Old Testament, and Dave gave us this whirlwind two-sermon tour through the associated book of name, which was fantastic. Um, Really, really impacted me. This means today we get to choose a new book together. And as uh, Dirks and Tony and I got together to discuss with the preaching team, we thought, you know, what what are we going to do next? And it quickly became, we had this sense of rightness that we should be teaching the book of Acts. I wonder why that is. I don't think we'll necessarily understand the full impact that this book is going to have in our church until we get to the end of it. And even then, we'll still be feeling the impact, I think, for a while to come. I think God is going to teach our church family something very special through these coming months. But I'm going to have a stab at a few reasons that I think maybe God has chosen this book for us. You see, Acts is all about the church. It's a narrative. It's, it's, a, it's a story that records the earliest days of the church on earth. To put it into context and by way of reminder, let me give you a really brief snapshot of the construction of the Bible and where Acts fits into that construction. The Bible is not one book, it's 66 different books, Old Testament and New Testament. It was written over about 1500 year period of time from the time of Moses in about 1450 BC, right up until 100 years, 90 AD, okay? So over about a 1500 year period of time on and off. All of the events, have historical evidence, by the way, of the Bible. The historical record of the Bible is phenomenal, phenomenal. 
But the Bible is broadly divided up into, as you know, Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament was finished being written about 300 years before Christ. And the New Testament is everything that was written since Christ came onto the scene. The Old Testament largely centers on this people of Israel, this nation of Israel. And it's mostly written in the Jewish language, Hebrew. The New Testament is also set initially in Israel which is now, at that stage, a part of the Roman Empire. And so it started, uh, in, it started to be involved exclusively with Jewish people. But as we'll learn today, it shows the expression of God's work not only to the Jewish people, but to the whole entirety of the world, the whole civilised world at that time. As such, it's written in a language that was known to the whole known world at that time, Greek. Now, specifically, the 27 books of the New Testament are broken up into the first four books, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then all the rest, which are letters. All but two of those letters have the same kind of idea. They're about expressing the truth of Jesus risen and what it means for us as a church. There are two exceptions. One's the book of Revelation. It's all about the future. Um, it's, it's written in imagery. It's difficult to understand. And then, then this, this book, Acts, the other exception, See, Acts is a story. It's a story of the church from the earliest point in the church right through until just before Paul, one of the main characters of the book of Acts, is set to be trialed and crucified. Trialed and killed, I should say, beheaded. You see, Acts actually occurs over a period of 30 years. Paul's awaiting trial when the book closes out in about 64 AD and the person ruling the Roman Empire at that time is the fairly psychopathic emperor Nero who liked to burn Christians for fun. So Acts though does a lot of explaining, it's like a bridge. It bridges the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John to the rest of the letters of the New Testament. Can you imagine for a second if Acts wasn't there? You go straight from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John into the book of Romans which is, which is, Rome is very, very, very far away from, from Israel. You'd have no idea how, how the gospel got there. Acts does that bridge building for us. You simply can't get a full understanding of all the letters of the New Testament without understanding the story of Acts first, or more formally, the Acts of the Apostles, as we come to know it. What is familiar is the name of the author of the book. It's actually written by Luke the same fellow who wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the only Gospel author who's not actually Jewish. He's Greek. But he happens to be one heck of a historian, recording history from those around him and using somewhat more complex Greek than the other New Testament writers, matching other important Greek texts of the day, including the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It also turns out that Luke, like me, is a physician. So we've got a little bit in common. And we actually meet him in this very book. What's interesting is that this book, you'll see, it changes from they and them, third person type language, halfway through the book, to we and us type language. That's when Luke joins in the party. It indicates the point that he joined in and started telling the story from the first person. And then we have the recipient of this letter. You'll see it in that first verse. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, it's the same fella who the Gospel of Luke was written to. Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? We don't really know, actually. No one's particularly sure. It almost doesn't matter in a way. It's kind of a mystery. Um, not that it's super important to the story, but it's possible that he was someone involved in the trial of Paul. And so Luke part one, the Gospel, and Luke part two, the book of Acts, kind of form a part of a defence for who this Paul is and what his background is. It's speculation, but it's interesting. So back to my point about why is it that I think God wants us to be studying this book together as a church? Because I believe that God is doing something special with this little group of people right here. I believe that God is equipping us to go out, do exactly what the church was meant to do. And that is to share the good news of who Jesus is and how much he loves the people in this very city. And not only in this city, but in the next city. And not only in the next city, but in the rest of Australia. And not only in Australia, but to the ends of the earth. Without serving as our introduction to the essentials of the book of Acts, 
it's time to jump into the text. So turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Let's look at our text, hey? Uh, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who he had chosen. We've already discovered who Theophilus is, and, and this is Luke's second letter to him. What's interesting here is that Luke says he wrote not about the things that Jesus did do and teach. You see that? Or that he finished doing and teaching, but all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, Jesus at this point is still doing and teaching. And since we live in the same period of history as when the book of Acts was written, Jesus today is still doing and teaching. We'll find out how that happens a bit later on. It continues to this present day. While book one was about everything Jesus did until Jesus was taken up, book two, Acts, is everything Jesus continues to do and teach since the ascension. It's a big word, we'll have a look at it in a second. The truth is this story, in a very real sense, didn't end with Paul awaiting trial. still being written. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is Jesus doing this. After his suffering, appearing to them during 40 days. I said before that we don't know much about Theophilus, but we do need to recognize one important fact about Theophilus. And that that is that I think he was a skeptic. And the way that Luke and Acts are written make it really clear. Luke takes pains to prove the truth of what he's writing. And we need to realize that Cal's Newey is not here only for Christians. It is here for Christians, but it's also here for people who are skeptics and who want to know more. That's what the church is all about. The skeptics like Theophilus. Perhaps you're here today and you're wondering what it's all about. You're not alone. In fact, you're very much like Theophilus. Let me explain this a bit further. Luke says that that after Jesus' suffering, in other words, after he had been killed on a cross, wrapped and laid in a tomb, resurrected, in other words, brought back to life, he began proving his resurrection to many people. See, everyone knew he was dead. That wasn't in question. Everyone at the time knew that Jesus was dead. They all saw it. It was a public event. But then they had to prove that he was alive again. Now, that would be something. You want to know why Christianity exploded at this time? Despite persecution, despite so many obstacles, and without any sort of of violence or any sort of political aspirations to help it spread? Well, it's this. The implications of a resurrection that could be proven beyond reasonable doubt. Because if you can prove the resurrection, a whole lot of other stuff really gets interesting. Paul explains this further in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus appeared to 500 people. Well, you might say people were more gullible then, more willing to believe that someone could be resurrected. But I have two responses to this. First, these people weren't just a little bit sure. This wasn't like someone saying, oh, I saw a ghost or I saw a spirit, or someone spoke to me from the dead. It's it's not like that. We have historical proof that every single one, bar one of these 12 disciples, except John, was killed for their faith. Every single one, bar one. And John got to 90 with incredible suffering. Would you let yourself be killed for something you weren't really sure about? And sure, if you are really devout, you might die for something you believed to be true based on what others had convinced you was true, hence the other religions. But these people died based on the evidence of what they actually saw. They suffered for what they saw. They suffered for their witness. No other religion has that kind of evidence. And this is on top of the second point. The resurrection did not fit with the worldview of either the the Greeks or the Romans at that time. Some Jews believed in a resurrection, but it was a resurrection at the very end of time, not partway through history and involving one person. And for the Greeks, physical resurrection would have been considered a horrible thing because they saw the soul as good and they saw matter as bad. 
idea of resurrecting physically would be evil. It would be terrible. And yet the evidence was strong enough to convince them. So this kind of provides the reason for the disciples to believe the truth of what Jesus said. But how and why does this translate into action for them? Well, that's what what we're going to look at. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. The the, the twelve apostles, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, that's John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you realize we actually have two accounts of these exact events written by Luke? Now we know that Acts follows on from Luke, but there's actually a little bit of overlap there. And there are some little nuggets when you put these two records side by side. They don't disagree with each other, but they do complement each other. Luke 24 records it like this, from the first time Jesus appears to the disciples as a group. Remember, they're sitting in this room, they're scared witless. They've just seen their teacher, their friend, their mentor, their Messiah, brutally killed on a Roman cross. And he was innocent. And they're afraid of the Romans. And they're afraid of the Jewish authorities. And they're thinking, how could this have happened? They're scared. They're disheartened, they're disillusioned, and they're sitting there fearfully in this room. I mean, perhaps you've experienced periods of disillusionment. Well, I dare say the disciples can probably relate. They're tired, they're grieving, and then someone shares a story that just maybe someone might have seen Jesus resurrected. And then they're talking about this very idea When Luke says in verse 36 of chapter 24, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. I can just imagine Jesus grabbing this piece of fish and there's this kind of stunned silence. While they just watch him eat this fish. Like what is going on right now? He's actually real. He's actually eating right in front of me. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day should rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What we see here is that the disciples are finally beginning to understand how all the different elements of what they've seen these last three years walking with Jesus come together. Now, for the first time, it begins to make sense. You know, C.S. Lewis sums it up beautifully in chapter 15 of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. This book, if you don't know, is a very deliberate retelling. It's a book written for children, but it's a deliberate retelling of the gospel message set in this magical world where Aslan represents Jesus Aslan the lion, and the witch represents Satan. The girls, who really represent, I think, the apostles, have, been, have seen Aslan killed by the witch and her minions, and they're inconsolable. They're weeping. They can't believe that this could happen to this precious lion. Then Aslan returns, very much alive, and through their tears of elation, he explains... It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And so for the disciples, for the first time, everything starts falling into place. It all starts to make sense. 
This gives us the why as to the disciples' willingness to go and to put their lives on the line. So at this point, you think the disciples might be itching to get out and tell, tell everyone what's, what's happening. But back in our Acts verse, did you notice something interesting that Jesus says? We've just read it in verse 4 of our text. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. It's also recorded in the end of Luke's gospel, in the very next verse from what I just read. It says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, the disciples had this amazing message to share, but they are told instead to wait. But not just to wait, to wait for something in particular. What was it? For God's power. What's the application for us? Well, how do you go with patience? I'm not naturally a very patient person. If I walk into a shop and there's a big line, I just walk straight back out again, honestly. Uh, you should see me when we're running late and the kids have lost their shoes for the 86th time that week. You know, I'm pulling my hair out. It's not pretty. It's actually a character defect. Um, but God's working on me. I'm slowly learning. Sometimes it's not easy to wait. Even for the bigger things or the things that seem to be really good. The key here is that it's not about our perfect planning, but rather about God's perfect timing. He made the universe. Do you think maybe he knows what he's doing when he asks us to wait? The reality is that even if we are working for something incredible, if we don't have God's power, we won't succeed. So what is this power they are to wait for? This section of Acts explains it further. Let's read it again. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized water, but get this, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus promises something very special to these disciples, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does that even mean? Well, we're going to circle around and pick it up again a bit later because verse 8 addresses the same question. But for now, the important point is that Jesus is asking them to wait. And now the disciples ask an interesting question, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, a lot of commentators and preachers give the disciples a hard time for asking this question, as if they completely missed the point. But honestly, I'm not so convinced. First, literally three verses earlier in verse 3, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of God. The fact that these Jewish men want to apply it to Israel is also very, very normal. They're in Israel. They've grown up expecting the Messiah to restore the kingdom of Israel their entire lives. It's what they've been taught to expect, that a Messiah would restore Israel. And the fact that the kingdom of God is coming to the entire world, not just to Israel, hasn't been fully revealed to these guys yet. They don't have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament, which explains this even further. But the second reason I don't think it's a bad question is because it seems that Jesus doesn't think it's a bad question either. How does he answer? Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. First, he doesn't say that the kingdom won't be returned to Israel, does he? Just that the timing is not for you to know. But my question is, how is his answer even related to what they asked? How is it related to restoring the kingdom? And it's subtle, but from our privileged position of hindsight, I think we're able to see what he's doing. Because he sticks with the theme of the kingdom, but then he broadens it out to be not just about Israel anymore. It's like Jesus is saying, boys, you're on the right track but you're not thinking big enough. I can't tell you the timing, but I can tell you the means. Then he immediately brings in this means of ushering in the kingdom to the whole world. In other words, he's giving them the panorama view. So he's saying, don't forget Israel. 
God certainly hasn't, but there's something else that has to happen first. The Spirit will come upon you. There it is again. You will receive power. There it is again. And then you will be a witness to the whole world of who it is that sits on the throne, the King. And you will begin in relative comfort in Jerusalem, right here, then in Judea, your own people, then Samaria, the next closest thing to your own people, and then to the ends of the earth. This is the story of Acts. And this is why we have chosen it as the title of our series. The title is The Ends of the Earth. That's the title of our series through Acts, To the Ends of the Earth. This is what all the entire history of God and humanity has been building up to to this point. This very moment in time when this small, insignificant nation in the backwater of the Roman Empire would become the center of the most powerful story in the world. So Jesus just drops this bomb. He says, wait, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will receive power. You will take my message to the whole known world and their heads are probably still reeling at these concepts. And then what does he do? Verse 9, have a look. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. We call this moment the ascension because it's when Jesus ascends into heaven. In the gospel account, Luke says it like this. He says, and he led him out as far as Bethany, which is part of the Mount of Olives, by the way. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So the disciples are standing there at the Mount of Olives and Jesus just gets taken up into heaven. You know, Kendall and I visited the Mount of Olives a few years ago. It's not a huge mountain, but it is really, really steep. And the view is just phenomenal, I've got to say. Kendall and I walked up the hill. Most of the people had common sense enough to drive up the hill. Uh, but we, we walked our way up. And, uh, and I was wearing Kendall's fisherman, fisherman's pants at the time, uh, which, yeah, I know. Uh, I might, I'll tell that story in a minute, actually. You can, look to, you can look down from there over the entire city of Old Jerusalem. It directly faces the, the, the eastern wall of, of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And guess what covers the slope today? Olive trees. Olive trees. It's, it's a phenomenal place to visit. Um, the Garden of Gethsemane is there. It's all there. It's, it's, it's amazing. So here they are on the Mount of Olives, and we don't know how long they stood there looking. It's like when you watch a bird fly away, you just follow it into the distance, and then you're not exactly sure when, but at some stage it's just gone. You're not sure exactly when. And the disciples, I, I just imagine them looking up. I could still see him. I could still see him. Is that him? I think I could still see him. And there he goes, and, and Jesus is kind of waving down, saying, bless you, boys, bless you, see you later. They're just staring, and, and they're staring when these two men arrive next to them. Like it's the most natural thing in the world for two angelic beings just to come and stand next to them. You know, and, and the angelic beings are kind of like, just looking at them, they're looking at nothing in the sky. And while they're gazing into heaven, verse 10, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These men, these angels are just standing next to them, watching them, watching. And verse 11, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up for you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now there's a promise, isn't there? What does it mean? It means that Jesus will return again. And how will he return? He will return in his body. He will return visibly. Everyone will know it. And he will return powerfully and to the same location. The Bible teaches us all these things, but it's, it's a study for another day. I had to cut it out because we we're going to be short of time otherwise. But Jesus is coming back. But what I want to do in the remainder of our time together is to look at the two big themes of this passage. First, the meaning of the ascension. What did it mean for the disciples and what does it mean for us now? And second, the role of the Holy Spirit. How does this all work? And as we'll see, these two questions are closely related to each other. First, the ascension. We often think about the ascension as kind of just being the last part of the resurrection, don't we? I mean, I do. I think that's a mistake, though. You see, it's conceivable that Jesus could have stayed on earth after his resurrection, in his glorified body, ruling from earth, teaching and equipping believers to do all the work that he has us doing. That's conceivable. But instead, he ascended into heaven. Why? I think there are three clear reasons that Jesus ascended into heaven. Number one, Jesus is currently ruling from heaven. Number two, 
Jesus is our advocate in heaven. And number three, Jesus made way for the Holy Spirit. Let's unpack that a little bit. Jesus is ruling from heaven, the first benefit of the ascension. Ephesians 1 says it like this in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, so this is ascension language, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and gave him who is head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is ruling from heaven. Remember, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of darkness. And Jesus is winning that war from heaven, no matter what you see on earth. But if he is the head and we are the body, then we accomplish his purposes on earth. This is the first benefit of Christ's ascension, that he could be king in heaven, ruling. The second benefit of the ascension is that Jesus is our advocate in heaven. When, we picture, when you picture a throne room, like in the olden days, a throne room, you kind of picture a king ruling, don't you? But you've you got to remember that in the ancient world, a, a king filled two duties. Number one, they ruled, they made laws, and they made decrees. Number two, they were also the judiciary, the judge, the one who upheld the laws. It's the equivalent of our court system. And this is where we see the second benefit of Christ's ascension. We learn about it in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in Hebrews 4.14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's again ascension language, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 16, Let us with the confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not Jesus begging for mercy on our behalf. That's not how it works. This is more like Jesus being our killer lawyer, our attorney. And he's standing there in the throne room of heaven and he's talking to the Father and he's saying, this is what happened. These guys, yeah, they're guilty, okay? But I already took the punishment in my body. The punishment is paid. You can't punish the same sin twice. He's reminding God of the only just action. And the just action is that we don't get punished because Jesus already has been. That is the second benefit of the ascension, that Jesus is our advocate and also our sacrifice. But then we get to possibly the most extraordinary result of Jesus' ascension, and that is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it's the other theme of this passage. You see, Jesus is closer to us now than he ever could have been if he'd never ascended i say that again. He's closer to us now than he ever could have been if he hadn't ascended. How so? Well, one of the basic teachings of Christianity is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's firmly and inextricably tied to the Christian view of the Trinity. That is that there is one God, but that God exists in three distinct persons, each with their own will, their own decisions, their own roles. And the third person of that Trinity is the Holy Spirit. He has this unique role, but for reasons we may not fully understand, he couldn't have fulfilled that role if he hadn't ascended. Jesus says it himself in John chapter 14. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 4 of chapter 16, I have said of John, John's gospel, I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, that he's, Jesus going to the Father, and none of you who ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth and get this. This is what Jesus says. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. You get that? It is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for us that Jesus ascended. For, Jesus says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. So that's the third benefit of the ascension, that Jesus sends his spirit. The importance of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit can't be overstated. It's possibly the biggest theme in all of Acts, so much so that some commentators reckon that instead of the book being called the Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I can see what they mean. And it's mildly controversial, this idea of the Holy Spirit and how it all works in this particular passage, because there are two main views, and I'm going to explain them both really quickly. The first view is that the Pentecost, which is, which is the big miraculous event that we see in the next chapter of Acts, is the first time that the Spirit ever indwells Christians. And therefore, that baptism of the Spirit is describing the process of believers receiving the Holy Spirit. And therefore, baptism of the Spirit is for all believers at all times from the point of conversion onwards. And then there's the second view, which is my preferred view, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are two distinct things. And the reason this is my preferred option is, is because, and look, it's not a core Christian doctrine. You don't, it doesn't matter if we disagree. We can disagree, it's okay. But I'm becoming increasingly convinced that this changes the way we live out Scripture. But let me try and make this case for why I think the indwelling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit are two different things. First, regardless of which of the two views people take, people universally agree that the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about here in our passage in Acts chapter, chapter 1 verse 8 refers to the events of Acts chapter 2, which was accompanied by a bunch of miraculous occurrences at Pentecost and which John is going to talk about in a couple of weeks' time. So why do I think that's not the same as indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Well, first, it seems to me that the disciples are already indwelt with the Holy Spirit at this point in time prior to Pentecost. Because if you look at the next verse in Luke's Gospel, straight after the ascension, remember it's in Luke chapter 24, what does it say they're doing? It says this, you'll have to take my word for it, verse 52, you can look it up later. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple Blessing God. Does that sound like the same disciples to you that were cowering in the room waiting for Jesus to be resurrected? Something has radically changed here. And what are they doing with their time? What does it say? It says they are continually blessing God. They had great joy, it says. What are the first two fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy. These sound a lot like people who have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Second, Paul says something really interesting in Romans 8 verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It seems clear to me that the disciples are already born again while they're waiting for the Spirit to come with power. And then there is the evidence that there are two kinds of experience of the Holy Spirit all the way through Acts. First, the indwelling, which we know every single Christian gets at conversion. You get indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has access to the Holy Spirit. And then the baptism or the coming upon or the filling, depending on which verse is describing it. How do we know they're different experiences? Well, for starters, the descriptions are completely different. There are many who come to faith in the New Testament who receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by definition, who do not suddenly act in these extraordinary ways. Then there is the fact that the baptism filling coming upon experience is always temporary in Scripture. Whereas the indwelling is a once for all permanent event. And finally, that this coming upon or filling or baptism of the Spirit can happen to those who are already known to be believers. Right? Like Peter in Acts chapter 4. He's already had the baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But then the, the Spirit fills him again. And, and Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, who was filled with the Spirit, it says, when he preached and was stoned, the first martyr. And then Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. And then Paul twice, once at his conversion in chapter 9, and again when he's speaking with Elimus, the magician, in chapter 13. So when did the indwelling happen for the disciples? If it wasn't at Pentecost, when was it? Well, what, at what point do the disciples suddenly seem to become indwelt with the Spirit? At what point do we see the change in their behaviour? Well, Luke records it for us in his Gospel, doesn't it? When are they different? As they left the Mount of Olives. And what happened on the Mount of Olives? What happened that very day? Jesus ascended. 
And what did he say he would do when he ascended? He said he would give his Holy Spirit. He would send a helper. This truth was revolutionary, that Christians could be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. They could be indwelt with the Spirit of God. It is revolutionary to the disciples. It should be revolutionary to us today that all believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about what it means to have the power of the Holy Spirit. But for today, let's focus on this. These believers had the Spirit indwelling them. It should change everything. But the reality is for me, I can live like a practical atheist a lot of the time. I can ignore that voice. I mentioned earlier about standing on the top of the Mount of Olives in, in, uh, my, well, in Kendall's fisherman's pants. Um, this is big, you know what fishermen's pants are? These big wide cotton pants. Anyway, uh, it's an interesting illustration of this exact fact. So go back to the year 2009. Um, Zim, who's now like six foot 17 or something, was about, um, was about 10 months old, right? He was little. Well, he was never really little, but a littler than he is now. Um, you know, and, and we'd been in the north of Jordan visiting this hospital. Uh, doing spiritual things, yeah, visiting a, a Christian hospital in the north of Jordan. Uh, and so we decided we're going to spend a week in Jerusalem just seeing the Holy Land, being spiritual and all. Um, and so our friends who were with in Jordan dropped us off at the border, which is on the Jordan River. So we cross over the Jordan River on a bus, or you actually walk across, and then you get on a bus in the north of Israel and you catch the bus all the way down through the West Bank, uh, past Jericho into Jerusalem. So that's what we've done. Halfway along the trip, we realised that we've left Zim's cot, at his travel cot, back in the van with the other guys in Jordan. So we don't have a travel cot, which is, you know, not great, but we thought, you know, we might figure something out. And then, you know, we're sitting on this bus surrounded by, like, teenagers who haven't started shaving yet holding AK-47s, because that's what you do in Israel. Uh, these guys are all in national service, and they're just travelling along this bus holding these big assault rifles. And Zim's, like, constantly trying to grab these guns and, they're, and they're, these, these teenagers are looking kind of scowling at us. We're like, well, he likes guns, you know, like, what can we do? Um, and then <laughs> we get to Jerusalem, the holy city. We haven't booked anything because it's, it's low season in Jerusalem. You can always get somewhere to stay in low season in Jerusalem. Uh, as it turns out, there was some special event on and it wasn't low season this particular night. So anyway, we jump in the taxi with Muhammad. His name's Muhammad, nice guy. Um, and he drops us to the old city of Jerusalem. We get out, we walk into the old city. You can't really drive through there. Uh, we walk into the old city and we're like, and, and our friends had said, um, stay at this place called the Petra. It's, it's really cool. Now, I think they'd been to the Petra quite a few years before because it wasn't particularly cool. And so we're like, we tell the taxi driver, just drop us off you know, near the Petra. We walk in to the Petra Hotel uh, and walked out again in about 30 seconds flat because it was like I wouldn't even leave my pet cockroach in that place. It was horrible. Um, and then, and so we're looking, walking around the old city of Jerusalem looking for somewhere to stay, but there was no room in the inn, as the old saying goes. There was nothing, nothing. There was literally nowhere to stay at all. We, we must have knocked on dozens of hotel doors looking for somewhere to stay. So... What did we do? We made our way back to the Petra. And we check in. There's no travel, there's no cots at the Petra. They're all taken or probably broken. Uh, and we get our room, we walk into our room. And at this stage, we're feeling a bit flustered. You know, it's, it's late at night. Zim hasn't had a sleep. He's little. Um, everything's just going a bit to pot. And it's just like, this is not going well. Uh, and so. I have this, had this, at this particular point in time, I had this habit of breaking the crotch out of pairs of pants, right? So I don't know how I did. I still maintain that I just had like a dud 27 pairs of pants in a row or something like that. But I had this, I had worn through, torn through every single one of the, of the pairs of jeans that I had taken along on this Israel Jordan trip. Um, and so I'm in Kendall's fisherman's pants. And we walk up into this hotel and it's grotty and we're tired and we're disgusted and there's, we couldn't even be bothered going to get food. And I think we ate some of Zim's baby food or something like that. And we, we try to set up this kind of barriers of, of furniture in the bottom of this grotty, grotty hotel in the middle of old Jerusalem for Zim to sleep in. I think we drugged him so he'd go to sleep. And we're kind of just feeling all sorts of horrible. Um, and we're like, 
you know, it's okay, we, we, we've got our camera, let's just have a look at the, all the nice photos that we've had on our trip so far to remind us how good this trip really is. And I'm like, Kendall, you got the camera there? She's like, no. This is like a camera that we were, you know, didn't have lots of nice things at that stage. This is like a $1,000 SLR camera, digital SLR camera. It was like the most expensive thing we actually owned, I'm pretty sure. And she's like, do you have the camera? I'm like, I don't have the camera. Do you have the camera? It was in the taxi. I don't know. I'm like, I got all the, she's like, I got the baby out of the car. I was like, oh, I got the 17 suitcases out of the car. Who got the, no one got the camera. We don't have the camera. The camera's lost. So we, at this point, we're just devastated upon disgusted. And we're just sitting there, cranky at each other, pretty miserable. And then something changed. I can't remember who it was, but one of us says, why don't we try praying? And I'm like, oh, we like, yeah, that's like a really good idea to do, isn't it, in the holy city? Let's try praying. How about that for an idea? So we pray and something changed. Were our circumstances different? No. Um, did we get our camera back then? No. Did my pants suddenly regain a crotch? No. None of that stuff happened. But we were, we were different people. We went to bed. We went to sleep. We were happy, we were content, we were calm. We had the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, that is the difference that it makes to walk by the Spirit. To walk as one indwelt with the Spirit. The amazing thing is next morning, I walked down to the hotel lobby and there's a message there from Muhammad, the taxi driver. He says, he says, give me a call, I've got your camera. So I give Muhammad, the taxi driver, a call and he comes and brings us to us, to our hotel, and doesn't want anything for it. I try to pay him, try to reward him. No, nah, just take it, just take it. Here you go. Um, a phenomenal answer to prayer. We find, we go like literally 30 meters away, and there's a room in the cleanest hotel I've ever stayed in in my life with a cot. And it's, it's a room in an Anglican um, church uh, with a hotel that they have attached to it, full of Christians who are just like you know, teaching us all sorts of stuff about Jerusalem. I got my pants fixed the next day, well, Kendall's fisherman's pants fixed the next day, hence I could take them up the Mount of Olives, and then we're exploring Jerusalem again. And it's very different. It's very different from before to after. And that's just a small picture of what it's like to be indwelt with the Spirit. But what about this baptism of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about here? Well, you know, we're going to cover this in more detail in a few weeks' time, but I just want to make a couple of really brief points Baptism means to completely submerge or to become drenched. It's used actually in, um, in, in other literature of the time. That word baptism is used to describe how someone dyes cloth. They just completely drench it in the dye. That's what baptism means. It just means being completely drenched. So it's very much synonymous with being completely filled. Okay? So filling of, the, filling of the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Number two, baptism in the Spirit is almost always the receiving of power, but not just power for anything. In fact, the word power can be translated ability. It's the word dunamis. It just means ability or power in the same way we would use, you know, I didn't, you know, I had the ability. You could use it exactly that same way. But it's always power to witness about Jesus. This is what we see when they're speaking in tongues. It's witnessing about the truth of Jesus. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes and goes as God wills and as the need dictates. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is temporary. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something we all possess. The baptism or the filling of the Spirit is God's prerogative. But man, I reckon it'd be a good thing to desire, don't you? To be filled with the Spirit, for God to give us the power through the Spirit, through the baptism of the Spirit, to reach people for Him. And John's going to cover that more further. But let me try and draw these threads together as we close. Because we've seen why this book is going to be special. It's got this unique place in bridging the Gospels to the rest of the New Testament. It's a book for skeptics. But that the proof of the resurrection, which we build our whole entire belief on, is grounded in rock-solid evidence. And then what the ascension means for us, it means that Jesus is ruling for us in heaven right now, that Jesus is advocating for us in heaven right now, and it means that we have the Holy Spirit in us right now. 
This is what I think my Bible college teacher Bob had figured out. How to walk in step with the indwelt spirit. This is why there were close to a thousand people at his funeral who were moved by how he had impacted them. This is what allows us incredible joy and incredible peace in the face of difficulty. This is what others will see and notice as peculiar and yet somehow attractive. This is what I want to be known for at my funeral. Not, he lies, Mick, he wrecked a whole bunch of pants, but he was a pretty decent guy. All right? I want it to be, he lies, Mick, he knew God. And he made God known. And as Luke said, the gospel was just the beginning of what Jesus was doing. God desires to use each one of us here today. Maybe you're doing great stuff at the moment with this. You're able to sense the work of the Holy Spirit moment by moment. Maybe you, you struggle to hear his voice. Maybe you've just forgotten to listen. Maybe you need to spend more time with your creator. Maybe this is all new for you and you don't even understand half of this stuff, but you're pretty sure you want to know this Jesus who made the way for you to know him. Wherever you're at, why don't we just pray together and ask God to move in us now, hey? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your Holy Spirit who even right now, Lord God, is moving among us who indwells us here, who is present with us in each of us. And we know that whenever two or three are gathered together in your name, there are you in our midst. And so we are aware, God, that you by your spirit are with us right now, moving among us. But we thank you that you have given us this book to understand what it is to know you in a, in a different kind of way. That it's not this head knowledge, it's not this, this, this knowledge about, but a knowledge of, Lord God. That you desire us to know you and that you give us the means of knowing you through the indwelling of your spirit, your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would just strengthen our ability to recognise your spirit's moving us. But we also ask that you would, at times, at the right times, in the right moments, Fill us with your Holy Spirit to do the works that you want us to do. Lord God, would you use us for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.